you're listening to a message from Kaleo Phoenix, a church plant in downtown Phoenix that creates space for people to practice the ways of Jesus together. I still sound a little bit hoarse, so it's okay, guys. I'm good. I'm not spreading any germs around, but I was really sick when I had to back out a few weeks ago, and so I, my voice still sounds a little crazy, but, um, but we're good. And yes, I work for Athletes in Action still, so it's a sports ministry that we work on college campuses, and so I do some stuff at ASU. I am the regional director for the Pacific Southwest, and then I also work for Surge, which some of y'all have maybe heard of the Surge Network. Would love to have y'all be in what we do at the Surge Network, too. So I'm like, let me talk to all of you guys after this, too, about Surge, because Sur- I, like, I, feel like, <laughs> I feel like Surge is just an extension of what Kaleo is about. And really, I'm on the Kaleo board, Chris, sorry, just because I really like Chris and Aaron. And I was like, how can I hang out with them more? If I say yes to the board, they're going to have to have me in their meetings, and then we can hang out. So I love them. I want to be behind what they do. I want to be behind what this church is doing in downtown Phoenix. And so... I love, I love it. I love it. So thanks for having me here. Um, given that I work for Athletes in Action, I will start with a story because I played um, basketball in college. This is where me and Chris, we have a height difference, but we have the same love for basketball. Um, I was a college basketball player. And so I want to start with a story from that. There was a moment in college. Um, it was the end of my junior year. I think we were going into my senior year. We had just had a bad year as a team. <laughs> so we underperformed. We did not make it to the NCAA tournament. So all of us are like sad and depressed. Our coaches were pissed. And it was just, we were not closing up a great year. And we're um, getting ready to like, all right, we got to transition into the next, right? So um, one practice, our coach, my head coach, she wanted to have these individual meetings with everybody on the team. And we're like, What? She had never said this before. So we're all around our whole arena. We're shooting free throws. And one by one, individually, she's calling people over. She's pulled a chair up on the sideline. And she, like, makes this little makeshift office. But it's not really office because we can all hear what you're saying low-key to everybody. So she's calling us over individually, one by one. And we're like, I wonder how this meeting is about to go. It looks, you know, I'm watching her. She's intently, like, talking to people. And I'm like... What is this going to be like? So she finally, right, she yells, Tautolo, you're up. And so I'm like, come in. So, you know, I gallivant over to the sideline, step into her office, which is the two chairs. And to be honest with you, I don't even, I don't even really remember much of what she said to me because at that point, as we're in our little individual meeting, it's clear that she's focused on everybody else. Like, she's super distracted. She's barely making eye contact with me. She's, like, saying things. And I'm sitting here, you know, I'm an athlete. I'm chomping at the bit. I'm like, I want to be coached. I want to be challenged. You know, I want to be called to contribute, called to, like, so I'm, like, I'm, like, ready. And she's distracted and not even making eye contact with me. And she's, like, yelling at other people across the gym about their form. And all the while I'm sitting here, you know, and I'm, and I'm frustrated and I'm like, I'm like on the verge of, I'm feeling some type of way because I'm like, you're not even, I'm invisible to you. <laughs> you're my coach and I'm invisible. And in that moment, I remember because I felt like I didn't matter to her. 
You know, she's having individual meetings with everybody on the squad. But with me, she's, she's distracted. And I felt like I didn't matter to her. Like my presence didn't matter. And that to my head coach, you know, maybe she thought I had nothing to contribute. Right? I was invisible to her. And listen, I'm 6'2". I have big curly hair. I've been taller than most of my teachers since the second grade, y'all. Okay, I'm pretty loud. I have a more gregarious personality. I've never been able to be invisible, even when I've wanted to be, right? I've never been able to be invisible, and yet I never felt so unseen, right, by someone that I just wanted to notice me, that I wanted to coach me and challenge me, and I felt so unseen. I felt so unimportant. And as a, a Division One athlete, I don't know, if y'all played sports in here, you probably know, like this... <laughs> I'm like, this is going to break me. Like, I feel it. The tears are welling up, and I'm like, hold it back. Like, I'm using all my strength so that I don't break down with tears. But then when I did get home from practice that evening, I did go in my room and cried. <laughs> and I cried, and I prayed through my tears, and I asked the Lord to remind me of who I am in him and remind me that my presence matters to him, even if it don't matter to my coach. And then I did go to El Torito with one of my teammates for margaritas and tacos, and that also helped. But, but, margaritas and tacos will help you get through it. But, but today, the, the Lord's sustenance, hallelujah. Um, but today, we'll read out of Genesis 16, and we'll look at a woman who felt invisible. Right, who felt like her life didn't matter. And to those around her, y'all, it kind of didn't, sadly. We'll read, we'll read it. And yet she met the God of Abraham who had something different to say. So would y'all pray with me real quick before we jump into this passage? Holy Spirit, we just invite you. We ask you to come and be present, to be in our midst as we dive into your word. Lord, and as, um, Lord, we ask you to shape us through your word, through the, the biblical narrative, God. Would you make us practice the ways of your son, Jesus, and look and be and embody more of who and what you are in the world, God. We love you. We ask this in your mighty name, Jesus. Amen. All right. So if y'all want to, you can read along or you can just, I like to just say story time. Y'all can just sit there and listen and I'll read like it's kindergarten class, you know. Um, just so you just soak it in, just soak in the passage. This is in Genesis 16. I'll read the whole chapter. I'll try to read it not too slow. So now Sarah, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarah said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan 10 years, Sarah, his wife, took her Egyptian slave, Hagar, and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar, and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarah said to Abraham, you are responsible for the wrong I'm suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and now, you, now she knows she is pregnant. She despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your slave is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think is best. Then Sarah mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. 
It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarah, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarah, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, you are now pregnant and you will give birth to a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he will live in hostility toward his brothers. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. That is why the well was called Be'er Lahai Roy. It is still there between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son she had born. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. He was old as heck when he had kids, y'all. But um, so, so what is going on? What is going on in Genesis? Okay, so Sarah had an Egyptian maidservant named Hagar. We heard it. So Hagar was a slave. She was an African slave. Your girl was from Egypt, okay? Sarah and Hagar were both women in a patriarchal culture. Sucks for both of them, right? Because women had no rights. They were destitute without a man of status to take care of them. They were real vulnerable. But Hagar, she was even more vulnerable than Sarah because Hagar was Egyptian. So your girl was a foreigner, right? She was also a Gentile. She was a non-Jew. So she was on, essentially, she was on the very wrong side of a racial division, of a divide between races, and she was not included as a part of God's people, right? Apparently not included into this covenant that God made with Abraham. Just a few chapters earlier in chapter 12, we're in 16. In chapter 12, God makes this promise to Abraham of like, I am going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to increase your descendants. I'm going to make your name great so that you'll be a blessing to all the peoples of earth, right? So this just happened a few chapters earlier, but Hagar is apparently not wrapped into that promise, right? So Hagar's gender and her race, they were enough to make her identity and her reality super heck of messy and complicated just by that alone. But those things were actually nothing compared to her status as a slave. And, and you guys know this, right? I feel like the fact that she's an African slave and all of us have a very specific context in our country's foundational narrative about antebellum slavery. So I'm like, I'm, I read this story and I'm like, oh, like there, I make parallels in my own brain, right? But she had no rights. She had no rights over her own body. She had no right to have a boundary if she wanted to. She had no right to say no to a request or to a plan that was having to do with her because she did not belong to herself as a slave and as a woman. She was essentially below zero on the social spectrum status, on, that, on the spectrum of social status, she was below zero. So when Sarah arranged for her husband to take one of her slaves, Hagar, as his concubine, there was no asking Hagar, do you think this is a good idea? Would you like to bear a child for me? There was no asking any of that. 
because Sarah needed Hagar to be a surrogate mother. She needed her because she was barren and she had lost all hope of becoming a mother. So she viewed Hagar as this last opportunity, this is my last chance to become a mom. Even though, here's the kicker, even though the Lord had just promised her husband he would increase their descendants, right? She had just, they had just got this promise and she's still out here like, ah, not, you're my last hope, Hagar, right? So, so there, so Sarah, we see there's a, there, she's not trusting God. She's not listening. She's not trusting God. So the thing about this too is this would have not been, this sounds crazy to us, but this was not an uncommon practice uh, ancient Near Eastern laws. This was actually normal. It was uh, it was allowed for for a master to use a maid servant this way, right? To force them into become a surrogate mother, um, and it would have been stipulated that the child they bore belonged to the woman who owned the maid servant. So, have y'all seen what's that? What's that show? Handmaid's Tale. I was reading this. I'm you know all week I've been reading this, and I'm like, oh. This is like Handmaid's Tale. I'm like, the Bible's got a lot of drama. But I share all of this simply to state the very obvious. Hagar was a woman that didn't matter to these giants in the biblical narrative, Sarah and Abraham. Hagar was a woman who didn't matter to them. She was insignificant. The only value she had to them was that she could become a biological mom, right? Because she could bear a baby. Her body could make a baby. She was inventory to them, right? She was invisible. And so even when um, I think, even when we look at the whole scope of the biblical narrative, right, if we don't, if we don't look at Hagar, if we don't take a second and slow down and see her in the narrative, Hagar can very much live on the pages of the Bible in the shadow sort of of the legendary Abraham and Sarah, Right? She can kind of live as a shadow, maybe viewed more as like a messy mistake that this power couple to whom the covenant was promised to made. You know, if we, if we miss her, right, we'll, we'll, miss this, we'll miss this spotlight that I think God puts on her in Genesis 16. And so we can all see where this is going, though, because it feels like this happens a lot. But Hagar, who's invisible, right, she's just a means to an end for this family. So she gets pregnant with a very wealthy and powerful man's child. So even though she's still a slave, her social status starts to skyrocket a little bit. So she's low-key feeling herself, right? She's like, I'm pregnant. I'm pregnant with Abraham's child. And because she, Sarah failed where she essentially succeeded, right? She could get pregnant. So she began to despise Sarah. And now Sarah, who is super pissed, she's losing status as Hagar is gaining it because she's got Abraham's baby. And so she's lashing out her husband. She's setting it off of him like, this is your fault. Like, you could, you could hear it, right? I could hear it in me, my, the women in my family. We would, yeah. But Abraham, right, instead of trying to mediate, instead of trying to come in and mediate between his wife and his baby mama, essentially, right, he, he abandons her. He abandons Hagar and says, basically, you're nothing more than a slave. So, Sarah, you could do what you wish with her. You could do what you wish with her. 
And as a mother of his child, she, she deserved his protection, but he did not give it. He did not give it to her. He withdrew it by basically being like, oh, my bad, sorry. So Sarah abuses this authority, and then Hagar flees into the desert to escape this abusive relationship she has with her mistress. And this is where uh, I love the story because it starts to shift. This is where it starts to shift. Because we pick up in verse 7 where it says that the angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. And he says, Hagar, slave of Sarah, where have you come from and where are you going? Right, and the angel of the Lord, this, these words in the Old Testament, they were used often to refer to God himself. So basically, God, Hagar didn't flee in the desert looking for God. God found her. God appeared to Hagar, the God of Abraham, that she's people that she, these people that she's like, I'm done with them. But their God appears to Hagar in the desert, right? And she has this divine encounter with God that would change her forever, right? She didn't find him. He was the prime mover here. The God of Abraham found her. And so first thing, what happens when Hagar has this encounter with God, right, this divine moment, the Lord spoke directly to Hagar, right? He addressed her by her name. And uh, if you were to read in the first chapters of Genesis, right, it was the same type of language um, that God used when he questioned Adam and Eve after they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then God came in here like, Adam, Eve, where are you at? Right? This is essentially the same kind of language. Right? He's where are you from? Where are you going? Right? It's, he's asking a question that he already knows the answer to, to someone that he created, that he knows, that he loves, like he did with Adam and Eve in the garden. Right? And um, she was just a slave. So I can, we can only imagine right, what, what she could have been feeling at the recognition of this God calling her by name, right? This intimate encounter where he, she didn't matter. She was unseen and God sees her and he calls her, right? Hagar, right? And this, this beautiful moment of being seen, being called by her name, it happens. And it's like, man, God is, God is giving her dignity. God is about to save her. And it's followed by this unimaginable request, right? Because he says, Return and submit to your mistress? Really? This is, this is what you want to do with this situation, God, right? This, this actually, this request from God to Hagar, it actually, it feels foolish. It feels dangerous, right? It feels super unloving to Hagar. But with her level of vulnerability, right, as this pregnant maidservant, right, she needed to be in a place where she could receive help from the father, of her child. But here's the deal. The Lord, he don't send her back empty-handed. He don't send her back with nothing, right? Just go obey me. But he sends her back with a powerful word. He sends her back with a powerful word of encouragement, right? Because he wasn't going to send her back into this hard, difficult, stressful, emotionally, mentally, physically, 
draining situation without this some deep encouragement that she could hold on to, that she could cling to to go back and obey. And so he gives her a glimpse of her future, just like he did for Abraham. He gives her a glimpse of her future, of what's, of what's coming, that she too, like Abraham, would have many descendants. Right? He, he, says, he says to her before, he says, go back, submit to your mistress. But he says, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. Right? He gives her a promise. And so this destitute woman hears from God that her and her unborn child were included in God's promises to Abraham. Right? So she was carrying in her body a piece of God's promise to his people. She was carrying it in her body. She was intimately involved in God's purposes. This slave, foreigner that nobody cared about, that was unseen and unloved, was intimately involved in the purposes of God. And he goes on to say, right, he tells her, name your son Ishmael. Ishmael means God hears. Right, so this surely sounds like God's way of reminding Hagar and her baby that God has heard them and he's going to continue to hear them. Okay, so this is, this, y'all, this is a beautiful moment, changing everything for Hagar. So she's returning to her mistress and her baby daddy in obedience to God, but not as some puny, invisible nobody, but as an image bearer herself. She is returning God as a new woman, a new identity, right, seared by the promise of God to his people, wrapped in intimately to God's covenant, okay? So this is, this is my favorite part of the story. I love it because this is where I think, um, I've heard it said one of the authors that I love to read is she says, this is where Hagar became a theologian. I said, oh, preach, Hagar became a theologian. Okay, because Hagar, from this point, Hagar, she gives God a name. And nobody, right, nobody in scripture, male or female, ever gives God a name, but Hagar does. Hagar gives God a name as a result of what she's discovered about the God of Abraham who found her in the desert. So she calls God El Roy, which is the God who sees me. The God who sees me, it's a most basic conviction, but it's a huge, it's a huge revelation to her that she is not invisible to this God. She is not invisible to this God. She is seen and known by this God. God has not abandoned her. God has not forgotten her. And her life matters to God, right? It don't matter to nobody else. It matters to God. He is the God who sees her. Even the um, spring in the desert where God found her, she renamed it to Beher Lahoy Roy. The meaning of that is the well of the living one who sees me. She is captivated by this God who finally sees her when nobody else has. Right? She's captivated by it. This encounter with the living God has changed her forever, forever. And so I want to just point out, like, I want to name a few things I think that we learn from this incredible woman in Scripture. And the first one I think she shows us 
is, right, Hagar models an intimate personal relationship with the Father, right? She reminds us that, right, God is cosmic, God is communal, he is all those things, and he is personal. He's personal, right? Before, uh, before Hagar's encounter with the angel of the Lord, with God, that happened in Genesis 16, God was spoken about in sort of these large, majestic, cosmic terms, right? So Elohim, the creator God, covenant keeper, the judge of the earth, El Shaddai, the almighty, right? Yahweh, these big, these big dope words, right? These names of God that express him reigning over all of creation, right? Him keeping his promises, ruling as mighty king over his people, right? They're powerful, awesome, like fantastic, magnificent names of God. But Hagar's understanding of God reveals the intimate side of him. Hagar, Hagar has an intimate experience of understanding God, right? Hagar teaches God's people that he's omniscient, right? Hagar teaches God's people that not only does he know everything, but he knows her. <laughs> he knows you and me intimately, right? His knowledge is infinite, and yet he knows me personally and intimately. This is what Hagar taught God's people about their God, right? That he is powerful over all creation, and yet he calls us by our name. He calls us by our name, right? And he loves the ones who seem to be unlovable to most everybody else, right? He knows us intimately. It's funny, my, um, my, I've, there's four, of, I have three siblings, and my family, we've been estranged from my oldest brother for almost two years now. And it's been a horrible, sad, painful situation for our family. You know, he's walked away from his son and married someone else, had a kid, they moved. Some, it's, it's been painful because we're like, oh, my gosh, he's walked away from everything, his kid, his family. Uh, and so it's, we, you know, my siblings and my dad, my siblings, we're like, we're pissed. We're on the verge of like, we, we're like, Lord, help us not to hate because we feel so much strong, like we, we can feel hatred toward him. But, um, you know, I was talking to my dad a few months ago about it and bringing it up. And, you know, my dad, he kind of just gets sad. And he says, you know, you know, as we're, I'm like going off, I'm like, he did this and this and this. And what about this? And you mean something like, you know, I'm, I'm firing, I'm going. And my dad just says, man, you know, I just miss him a lot. I just miss him a lot. And I'm like, oh, man, God, you're teaching me about you through my own dad. You know, you're teaching me about who you are. Because is that not the heart of a father? Right? Where I'm like, the siblings were like, we're going to war. Let's go. You know, but, but the father is like, man, I just miss him. I just miss him. And that's who Hagar, that's the God Hagar introduces us to. It's this intimate father who no matter what we do, right, we could be, horrendous and God's like I just miss you you know I just love you I just miss you right oh I'd be, I'd be crying up here man okay but it happens all the time I know if you know me I just cry a lot if you if you're around me but King King David right even um later in the Psalms right we see King David writes about this intimate love too when he in Psalm 139 when he says 
oh, Lord, you have searched me and you know me, right? So King David, King David is writing about this intimate love too. Hagar, right? Hagar's changing the whole, she's shifting the Bible. That's how, that's how I see it. I'm like, man, thank the Lord that he would use Hagar to reveal himself in this way to his people. Thank the Lord that he is El Roy, the God who sees me. Okay, so that's one. Two, this is something I think we learn from Hagar, is that God doesn't call us to himself without also calling us to his people. And I say this because, listen, I know churches don't always feel like safe places. Right? I know that. I, I, our most painful wounds often come from relationships with other believers, where right? we know this. People, we all know this too. People right now are fleeing churches because they've been deeply hurt. They felt lied to. They felt indoctrinated into some trash theological views that have been co-opted by some trash political ideology, right? People are angry and upset and they're leaving churches. God's people, y'all, are messy. I'm putting myself in that. We are messy and we're sinful. And these people, right, God's people, we're supposed to be um, family, right, family by the blood of Christ. And yet these, the, God's people can be the most hurtful, the most harmful, the most judgmental, and often the ones we don't want to be affiliated with. Like that's just, that, that's true for a lot, like there, a, you know, a lot of y'all have probably walked through some of this. And yet, God called Hagar back to those people. God called her back to those people, right? And if anyone should have had the right to not go back to God's people, it's Hagar. She should have been the one who didn't have to go back. But God called Hagar back to his people where she would learn about the promises of God. Right? God called Hagar back to his people where she would learn um, teachings that Abraham would pass on to their son, Ishmael. Right? God called Hagar back to his people where she would actually watch the fulfillment of God's promise when Sarah did finally get pregnant and had Isaac, and she would watch the promise be fulfilled. Right? There was rich purpose for Hagar being called to God's people, right? And this is not, I, nobody says this as an excuse for people to be like, you're in an abusive relationship, you need to go back. Absolutely not, right? We're, fight, we're fighting on site. Like nobody, nobody's trying to send people back to abuse and abusive relationships. But God, we cannot be called to God without being called to his people. And we see it in how we called Hagar back for this purposeful learning. But the other part of this purposeful learning that I love is that it's mutual, right? It's not like they had to teach Hagar everything. Hagar, this is why we need each other, right? Hagar had some things to teach God's people about their God, right? Hagar was maybe uh, the first glimpse in the Bible where um, maybe we see that God intended to include Gentiles into his covenant as his people all along, right? We, we, we don't know that till the New Testament, but I'm like, eh, eh. There was kind of a glimpse, right? Like we kind of see it right here. Then this was probably God's plan all along. And then Hagar, she will always be known in the pages of the Bible for helping God's people understand in an intimate way that God sees them, 
right? She will always be known in the pages of the Bible for this. So as she was soaking up things from God's people, they were learning things from her. And it was written, passed down in oral tradition and put in the Bible. So the last thing that I'll say I think we learned from Hagar is that she reminds us that our worst, ugliest, most painful moments in life are a part of a bigger story. And one day they're going to be swallowed up by the glory of God. One day they're going to be swallowed up by the glory of God, right? So, so Hagar, uh, we're not reading Genesis 22 because I was like, listen, I can't be reading all the scriptures. But Hagar actually gets the short end of the stick again later in Genesis 21. And this is after um, Sarah got pregnant with Isaac, had Isaac, and then Sarah's like, uh-uh, you better t- you take that slave woman and her son and get, tell- and get rid of him. Because she's like, he is not going to share in this inheritance with my son. Right, and Abraham kind of has a moment with the Lord, but he gathers up some food and some water, and he, he sends Hagar and his son out into the desert. Okay, and then they run out of water, right? They run out of water, and Hagar, the, Ishmael's crying, and Hagar sits Ishmael, essentially, she, she sits him in some shade, and she walks off a little while, a little bit away, and she's like, I, I can't watch, my baby's about to die, and I cannot watch it. So she, she, t- she steps away a little bit. And then um, it says, right, this is a, a moment of desperation. Pro- like her baby's about to die. So much pain and desperation. And God heard, it says, God heard the boy crying. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, what is the matter, Hagar? Do not be afraid. Right, God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Lift the boy up and take him by the hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Right? Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. So she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. Y'all, God sees our desperation and our despair. He hears our cries like he heard the cries of Ishmael in the desert, right, on the verge of death. And it's the tender voice of that father that we just talked about that showed up that said, what's the matter, Hagar? Do not be afraid, right? Do not be afraid, right? God made it, uh, he made it clear to Hagar that her son's life is now a part of the story of his people. He made it clear to her again, right? Because he said, for he too will be a great nation, right? Just like his father, And he reminds her of that promise because he said something to her like that earlier, right, in Genesis 16. He he said that, but it was this this powerful word of encouragement, this promise to hold on to that she needed to hear, right, that helped her obey and helped her be obedient. And so he had to to remind her of the covenant again, like, don't worry, your son, I'm going to make him into a great nation too, just like his dad. And so that she would be able to trust him. So that she, right, she'd be able to, when in the desert seasons, your girl was literally in the desert, but that she would be able to trust him, right? That she would know, okay, I'm really not forgotten, right? I'm really not unseen. I'm not invisible. You see what's happening here, and I can trust you. I can trust you through it. So like Hagar, these painful, intimate details and moments of our lives 
they are a part of a bigger story of redemption, right? We don't often know, I never know, the details of how our lives will unfold, but we do know how this story ends. We know how this story ends, right? We know through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ that death, pain, injustice, that sin it will be swallowed up by the restoration of all things. We know how this story ends, right? That the, the inauguration of the kingdom of God, at one day it's going to be fully realized and fully here, right? The renewal of all things, it's coming. We know the ending. But the more scary, painful moments of Hagar's lives where she thought, man, my son's going to die, where she had no control of it, where she probably felt the most abandoned in this moment, right? She felt the most invisible, the most uncared for, the most unseen, right? In these moments of our lives, it's a moment where God speaks this powerful promise to her, reminds her about her son's life and about her legacy, right? And, and maybe this is a theme in history. Maybe this is a theme in history because I also think of Jesus Right? And in the moment where he felt the most abandoned, the most uncared for, the most unseen, on the cross, right, waiting to surrender his body unto death, right, this darkest moment in this darkest hour. But that was only to be followed by his resurrection three days later, right, having sealed his covenant with his people once and for all, right? These unbearable, painful moments in God's story, right? The, the, they are, these unbearable, painful moments are the powerful moments in God's story where he is shifting and changing and sealing things. And in the moment, we're just like, I can't do this. But God's giving us powerful words and reminders and encouragements to give us the courage to obey, to give us the courage to persevere, right, through these desert moments, these desert seasons. And so I hope when you wrestle through those moments in your own life, you know, I, as I think about this, I was thinking, what are the worst moments in my life? I was like, man, watching my mom die from cancer was the worst moment in my life, right? I could think of tons. Y'all can too, these horrible moments in your life. But I hope as you're thinking about those moments that you would call to mind this woman named Hagar, Right, who points us to the God who sees us in the wilderness, the desert. Right, so may you carry a Hagar presence with you everywhere you go, teaching those in your care about El Roy, the God who sees me, and embodying the presence of this covenant-keeping God who deeply loves and knows the unseen, the unnoticed, and the unimportant. And may we be a people who see the unseen and notice the unnoticed, that we might emulate El Roy in our lives. So let me pray for you guys. Would you bow your heads with me? El Roy, you are the God who sees me. Um, Lord, you are the God who sees us. And today we are so thankful for the life of Hagar. And Lord, what you taught your people through this woman, Lord, how you wrapped her into your covenant as a part of your people, Lord, that she carried within her womb a piece of your promise to Abraham, 
Um, God, would you help us to carry the spirit of Hagar around, Lord, that when people would, yeah, when people would encounter us, Lord, that we would be people who proclaim you are the God who sees. You are the God who sees the unseeable. You are the one who sees people who are invisible. Lord, would you help us to be a people like that too? We love you so much, Jesus. We ask this all in your mighty name. Amen. For more resources or information about Kaleo, please visit our website at kaleophx.com or follow us on social media. If this episode has been helpful to you, let us know or share it with someone you know.